For Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose, I'm Ken Beaulieu. There is no denying that youth activism is on the rise around the world. From climate change and inequality to healthcare and immigration, young people are making their voices heard on the most pressing issues of our time. And their fight for social justice and social change will only get louder and more coordinated in the years ahead, thanks in large part to the inspiration and resolve of Seth Maxwell. For the past decade, Seth has played a lead role in empowering youth to champion causes they care deeply about. A renowned activist speaker and entrepreneur, Seth is founder and CEO of two nonprofits, The Thirst Project and Legacy Youth Leadership. Through these organizations, he is building the next generation of socially conscious activists to help drive real action and change the world. Seth has spoken internationally at more than 300 schools, as well as several conferences, including the TEDx Hollywood Youth Conference and the Nexus Global Youth Summit. He's also a member of the U.S. Speaker Program as a leader in his field. Seth joins me to discuss youth activism and his remarkable work. Seth, welcome to Beyond Profit. Thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to have you here. So as I mentioned at the top, Seth, you've long been empowering youth to make a tangible impact in the world. Was there a particular life experience that set you on this course? Yeah, so initially, before I had ever started a nonprofit, before I ever really began intentionally working with my peers or, or young people, I first learned about the global water crisis when I was about 19 years old. I was living in Los Angeles, and a friend of mine was the first person to expose me to this issue, which at that point, there were about 1.1 billion people in the world who just didn't have access to basic, safe, clean drinking water. And I was struck by how massive in scale this issue was, but also how I, as a relatively well-educated 19-year-old, had never really heard about it before. And so I started talking to my friends, galvanized them to help put together some different events around our city to raise awareness of this issue and get people talking about it. And so one day we took to the street of Hollywood Boulevard to raise awareness and have as many conversations with people as we could about the issue. And there were two people that day who met us and exchanged info and said, hey, would you guys come to our school? Basically tell our friends what you told us. We want to see if we can do something similar. And so we went and spoke at those two schools, kind of forgot about it until about a month later, those schools called us back and said, hey, we did fundraisers and sent checks to us amounting to over about $12,000. And that was really the moment, if you're asking about a, a catalytic moment, you mm-hmm. know, for, for working with young people, that we realized there was tremendous untapped potential in students and young people our age around this issue. And so we created the Thirst Project initially, aimed at helping to activate our peers around the issue of the water crisis. Did that reaction surprise you at all? I mean, initially, yes. Initially, because I think there is this idea in culture and even amongst young people themselves, there's this idea that there is a order of operations that we all have to follow, that you're, you're born, you go to school, you go to school to get good grades, mm-hmm. you get good grades to get into a good college, you get into a good college to get more good grades, presumably to get a good job, to make lots of money, to buy lots of cool stuff, and then die. And I think that, you know, there's this idea that that is the best you have to look forward to. And in within, embedded inside of that idea, there is this other sort of somehow accepted belief that 
people can only get about changing the world or doing something to help people when they have reached some mythical, mysterious next point in life, right? Like, well, if I just was a little bit older, or if I just had a little more money, or if I just had this degree, then I would somehow be more qualified to take action. And I think what we've discovered through that experience that while it was initially surprising, what we have seen time and time again is that not only could that not be any further from the truth, that, that we believe now young people are the most powerful agent for social change in the world, period, but also the world candidly can't afford for young people to wait until they are just a little older or have a little bit. The world needs people now, young people today. And so I think we were definitely shocked by the capacity of our peers at the time, but now we know that isn't abnormal. That is simply what young people are capable of. Seth, what did you personally learn early on about being an activist? What type of advice do you have that would serve others well today? And were there any stumbles along the way? Oh, man, I literally could do a, a multiple podcast about nothing but all the stumbles. <laughs> so, yes, there were lots and lots of stumbles. But I think as far as advice for activists starting out, if you are passionate about something, if there is an issue that breaks your heart that you know you have to do something or that you, you feel called to take action in, the first thing I would say is don't ignore that feeling. Don't ignore that call. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's so easy, again, for us to get lulled into normal life of just going through that order of operations, of working, making money, buying stuff, whatever, and thinking, well, someone else will deal with this problem. Someone else will help raise money for that volunteer for that, give their time, their expertise. And there are so many issues, whether it be climate change, racial justice, inequality, the water crisis, that need all of us to come together to build a world that truly works for everybody. And so I would say, number one is don't ignore that drive or that feeling. But number two, I would say, again, don't fall victim to the belief that the work of social good is relegated only to those of us who do it for a living, only to those people who are nonprofit professionals. It takes everyone to build the world we all want to be a part of. And so I would say find a group that is tackling the issue you care about and help them. I mean, every cause, every organization is in desperate need of more resources, more support, more people. And so I would say find those people who are in alignment with you, who share that heartbeat for the issue you care about and give of yourself, give of your time. If you have the resource to do so, give of your money, give of your skills to help grow those initiatives. So while you said that we could use a whole podcast on your stumbles, I am curious, maybe perhaps talk about one that really influenced your life. I think this kind of, I guess, ties back to the other question about a piece of advice. But I think if I, you know, if I ever did anything well, it was knowing all of the many, many things that I was not good at and finding Mm -hmm. people who are great at those things and surrounding myself with them. And so I am painfully aware of all of the (laughs) many, many things that I either knew nothing about when we began or have still got so much to learn and try to find people who are excellent at those things, excellent at finance, excellent at operations, excellent at marketing, to ask of them to help guide where we will go. And I would say that's you know, probably the best piece of advice I can give for someone building something starting out. But I think one of the things that shines a light on one of those early stumbles 
was admittedly when we started Thirst Project, initially relative to the water crisis, we did not know what we did not know. And probably the least sexy statistic in the water organization space is that you know, over 60% of water projects that are built by foreign NGOs just in the continent of Africa, you know, not counting Asia or South and Central America, fail mm-hmm. in the first year. And if you pull back the curtain on those so-called failures, you know, you'll see communities that have projects that have been completed by other groups in them that sit unused. And if you look at why, the reason is always usually one of two things, both of which we would consider very either A, easy repairs to get back online and operable, or B, very inexpensive repairs to get back online and operable. And it's not usually a question of, you know, mallet or, you know, intentional bad judgment or, you know, misuse of resources. In fact, it's usually the opposite. Usually it's pressure from donors to perform projects, construction in the most time-efficient and cost-efficient way possible. So what happens is you see groups that'll build projects that maybe don't train communities on maintenance and repair, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when a hand pump will need repair. If you have, say, 300 people in a village using the same water point every day, 365 days a year, eventually you're going to need to fix a sanitary seal, gravel pack, change a hand pump. And so if communities themselves are not trained by organizations or people that they work with to build them how to do so, those projects will sit unused when those repairs need to be made. Mm-hmm. Similarly, communities, uh, we, we set up operations and maintenance funds, bank accounts in the community's name that we do not have access to, but the community will contribute a predetermined amount of money each month to it so that, again, not if, but when hand pumps need repair or something like that, not only should communities know how to make those repairs, but they should have their own funds independent of us set aside to do so. But while that sounds really great, we did not know that early sure, on. So sure. admittedly, when we first began, we were exclusively a funding organization. So we would say, hey, we've got, you know, we raised money from a school. We had $10,000, $20,000, $50,000. And we would go to other groups that were building water projects and say, hey, what do you have in your portfolio of projects that we can donate to and fund? Again, because we did not know at that time, but we did not know, we didn't know to ask, you know, why is it that perhaps maybe one group elected water committees made up women and men from the community that they trained on maintenance and repair, but another group did not. Or why did one group do hydrology and groundwater surveys before they built projects to determine uh, the best location to build projects, but another group didn't. And so after about two years, we pushed pause on funding any project and you know we created our water project technical board, which is a group of civil engineers and hydrogeologists who now oversee from start to finish all of our implementing practices in the field to try to ensure for sustainability. But that was not a reality for the first two years of the organization's history. So, you know, in light of all the challenges that we face today, and you rattled off a few, and I did at the top as well, would you say that there's no better time for young people to use their voices to change the world when you look perhaps back at the last five or ten years? Absolutely. Yeah. Not any wonder. Like, if you think about the world that we live in today, we have hardwired this generation and I mean beginning with the millennial generation to Gen Z and the emerging generations beyond, you know, if you look at this perfect storm that's been created, you have first and foremost really beginning with the upper end of the millennial generation was the first generation where such emphasis was placed from day one of those people's lives on the idea that everyone needed to go to college. We accept that as if it's always been the case, but the reality is not. And you have for the first time ever this very high 
highly educated. However, number two, one of the most under or unemployed generation of our nation's history. And so you have this very highly educated but very under or unemployed group of people who are aware of issues that their counterparts and other generations may never have been aware of, certainly to the degree of comprehending them, as well as have the time on their hands to take action around them. And number three, you know, you have the most globally connected generation that our world has ever seen. This is a group of people who grew up playing video games, having chat in chat rooms with people in other countries, in India, in Bangladesh, learning about people and friendships that they developed in communities experiencing realities that perhaps their adult or, you know, other generational counterparts never had before. So this highly educated, highly under or unemployed, highly globally connected generation who, number four, I mean, if you look at the way we have programmed this generation, Sesame Street, you know, a few decades ago, shifted the focus of all of their educational programming from emphasizing just ABCs and one, two, threes to really emphasizing uh, empathy Mm -hmm. and sharing and caring. Mm -hmm. And so we have literally, with all of these factors, hardwired this generation to be aware of and be moved to take action around solving problems that perhaps their other counterparts in previous generations maybe just weren't equipped to do. I would say it's easy to get discouraged by so much of the turbulence in our world today, so much of the, it just can feel like our world is just shaking around us with injustice and pain. And yet, I think it's easy to look at that and ask, man, why why have these problems never been solved before? Why are we still living in this? And I think the encouragement I would give to young people is these problems have never been solved because there has never been a generation before that was quite equipped to solve them. And these moments exist because they have been waiting for you to meet them. Right. Tell me a little bit about the uh, legacy youth leadership and why that's near and dear to your heart as well. I've really shifted most of my focus. I still, you know, am involved in overseeing a lot of the work at Search Project, but I've spent the last several years really building this new organization we recently launched called Legacy Youth Leadership. And, you know, over the better part of a decade at Search Project, we built our school programs. There are lots of great water organizations, but what made Search Project unique is that we were the largest youth-led water organization in the world, really. And mm-hmm. so at its height, you know, we had in the 2019-2020 school year, between our school tour and all of the schools that had clubs and chapters that would raise awareness and funds to build water projects, we had about 360,000 high school and college students who took action to help us end the water crisis. And we committed to those students to give 100% of all the money they raised directly to build projects. So mm-hmm. we were a pretty amazing group of donors led by our board and sponsors who funded all of our operating expenses. And in that model, it was always really easy to point to the impact we made in the lives of, stu- uh, in the, lives of the people who we served with the water crisis, right? It was always really easy to go, well, this is the impact we made on the water crisis. We, we brought this many people safe water. We, we reduced waterborne diseases by this percentage, it was much harder to point to and articulate the impact we made in the lives of students and young people. But we knew we were making it. We knew it because I quite literally got letters from students who I never met before (laughs) saying things like, thank you so much for starting Thirst Project. If it wasn't for Thirst Project, I don't know what the highlight of my senior year would have been, which is beautiful, but it's really qualitative. And so I, about two and a half, three years ago, locked our school's team in a room and I asked the question that thankfully nobody ever asked 
fastest way. But I said, guys, apart from using young people as ATMs to fund water projects, which, you know, sure, in and of itself could be noble, what is the value we provide, not to the people we're serving in the communities of the water crisis, but what's the value we provide to students? Mm-hmm. And so we set out to define and measure that value. And we realized after working with our own team and working with a couple social scientists here at some universities in LA that we determined that from the time a student took action with one of our programs, the time that they completed it, there were about 14 different hard and soft skills that students developed as a result of going through these programs that had nothing to do with how much money they could or couldn't raise for the water crisis. Things like their communication and public speaking skills, their organization and strategic planning skills, goal setting, leadership skills. Obviously, you know, yes, event planning, fundraising, marketing, etc. But we realized there were you know, whole organizations dedicated to accomplishing or achieving these outcomes, to helping young people develop their leadership skills mm-hmm. and take action around the causes they cared about the most. And we realized that if we were intentional about designing these programs, we could be intentional about achieving these outcomes, not just accidentally, but intentionally. And so to give each mission, you know, the one being to end the water crisis for Thirst Project, the other being to develop a socially conscious and active generation of young people and mm-hmm. develop their leadership skills. To give each one of those the resources and attention and energy they deserve, we created Legacy Youth Leadership. Now, are there specific tools that you're providing these kids to help them reach their goals? Absolutely. So what's super interesting, too, having been able to spend you know more of my focus for the last couple of years on the legacy side is that it was very much the case that our goal on the Thirst Project side was always how much money can we raise to build water projects. Mm-hmm. That was the goal, right? Because there was a direct correlation between how much impact we could make on the water crisis based off how much money we raised. But what was so interesting was that because fundraising was one of only 14 different hard and soft skills, that it was no longer the sole outcome we were looking at as a measurement of success. And that when we built these programs, right, so we still lead a school tour that is organized by legacy youth leadership and still educate students about important issues like the water crisis, but that's really our outreach vehicle that casts the net to then bring students into our three primary leadership development programs. One is our leadership and mentoring program, one is our school clubs program, and then one is our public speaking program. And while there is definitely overlap between student participation in any one of those three programs, you don't have to commit to all of them. And so what happens is as students go through those three programs, each one has a series of curriculum, both written and video curriculum, that lives on a, a digital platform called Mighty Networks that students go through. And then as they complete that, they are matched with mentors, full-time staffers on our team, who help them figure out how to apply those leadership skills they're learning in the real world, whether it be around building their own clubs or many organizations, whether it be around leading awareness initiatives, fundraisers, or you know putting into practice their communication skills, giving persuasive speeches around social issues they care about. And so what's so interesting is because fundraising is really no longer the sole metric for success, it allows us not only to provide these programs and these tools we've built to students to help them develop, yes, they now the byproducts for them is that they are making an impact on important causes like the water crisis. But because of that shift, we can now actually disproportionately be intentional about trying to position these programs in front of schools that have either historically been underserved, who haven't had as much, as many access, or sorry, as much access to these kinds of programs before, whether those be lower income schools, schools that are predominantly schools of color, because again, the outcome we're looking for is not just how much money can you raise for a cause. The outcome we're looking at is how can we develop your leadership skills and then the application of that is what you do around the cause.
What's the reaction been from the schools that you've uh, reached out to? Has it been overwhelmingly positive? Absolutely. It's been really, honestly, exciting and rewarding. I think, again, we knew for the longest time, you know, we were, before we started building what we've been testing with Legacy, we knew we were making impact in students' lives. But again, almost accidentally, initially we thought were the vehicle to help us in the water crisis. And we realized that as time went on, yes, the impact that we were making on the water crisis was incredible, but the impact we were making in the lives of students was almost more powerful. And that as much as the world needed those students, those students needed us. Mm-hmm. And so I think schools are so tapped and so tapped. Every teacher, certainly in the public school system, is overstretched and under-resourced. And so I think to be able to come in and provide manpower and staff and free resources and support to help provide access to this kind of social-emotional development, mm-hmm. uh, to provide this kind of access to these kinds of tools that help students not only improve as citizens, but academically, it's been really encouraging to see some of our legacy schools who've been with us for a long time really celebrate and encourage this transition. Seth, you partner with several big brands on cause marketing programs. I'd love to hear more about some of these activations and how they benefit both sides. We try to be really equitable partners when it comes to the brands or corporate sponsors that we work with. And so we typically, you know, we don't approach corporations kind of just with our handout saying, hey, we do good work, mm-hmm. you give us money. We do believe we do really good work, and we do believe you should give us money. But we're also aware that, you know, we have built a few different networks or communities that are really valuable that if we collaborate equitably can really help everybody and make a significant impact on a brand, right? I mean, working with 360,000 students, those students can directly influence the performance of almost any product. And so we've done a number of different, to your point, cause marketing campaigns where we will partner with brands and help position either the brand and our partnership or their product in front of our students in a way that it's really important for us, you know, feels authentic, doesn't feel like Mm -hmm. just slapping a logo on a race car, but that also has very clear marketing value and ROI for our partners. So a good example, one of my favorites, you know, we did a campaign a a year and a half or two ago around the release of the most recent Transformers movie, Bumblebee. Mm -hmm. And so what we did was rather than approaching Paramount Philanthropic or, you know, Foundation or CSR department for charitable giving, we approached their marketing department and said, hey, we know the demographic that you're targeting for this movie is our audience. You know, we were incredibly data-driven. We try to keep really robust profile data on our students. We know that we are overwhelmingly female. Uh, About 74% of our students are female. About 52% of them are 17 and a half year old. So uh, it was right in the demo they were targeting for this audience for this movie. It was the first Transformers movie they wanted to shift to a primarily female audience. And so we basically created a marketing campaign for the movie that we did all the heavy lifting for as the organization, just like any other marketing agency would have done for them. The difference is when they gave us the money they gave us to do it, rather than like, you know, going and buying cars like marketing agencies or whatever for our executives, we did good work. And so the structure was really fun. We shot a series of commercials that were styled as PSAs with John Cena, where he said, in our movie, Bumblebee seeks refuge from a Decepticon attack in a small California beach town. But yet, in real life, there's something far more dangerous than Decepticons. You know, 600 million people in the world don't have access to safe, clean water. And the call to action for our students was text the keyword Bumblebee to 9779. For everyone who does so, our movie will donate to the Thirst Project and make sure you go see Bumblebee in theaters everywhere in December. So it was clearly an ad for the movie, but it was done in a way that narratively made sense, gave our students something they could actually do 
that didn't cost them any money, mm-hmm. but made real impact financially on the cause they cared about. And we promoted it across all of our channels. So we promoted it to our school tour, reaching tens of thousands of students. We promoted it and built out a robust PR campaign, getting tens and tens of millions of impressions in PR, obviously tens of millions of impressions in social or digital coverage. And it provided a lot of real value to the studio and the brand. And so for us, we've loved those kinds of campaigns because it's a real win for everybody. We feel really good that not that there's any reason to feel ashamed about just asking for money because of the work we do, but it does feel better when we can find that intersection that is organic, authentic, natural, and actually helps everybody. Sure, absolutely. Seth, are you happy with the strides that brands are making in terms of being more purposeful and trying to make a difference in the world? Yes, absolutely. I think there is a rightful and understood cynicism and criticism of brands for the most part from consumers. I think what's so interesting is like not news or anything revelatory, like particularly millennials, Gen Z and emerging generations, like they can smell from a mile away when something is performative. And so I think, you know, there's a... Um, I think earned distrust in a lot of ways of corporate CSR strategies or philanthropic initiatives. But I think what's so interesting is the external pressure from the world that we live in that is forcing brands to be socially conscious, to be clear on what they take a stand on, if they take a stand on anything, and then back up the impact they make, whether that's having really strong and clean supply chains that don't damage the environment, whether that's providing fair wages to the people who make their product, whether that's uh, doing good in the community they're part of, or or, you know, helping to advocate for causes that students or young people care about. I think all that's really encouraging. And I think I had a conversation with some students a couple weeks ago where we had this very conversation. And, I mean, they sort of held me to task into the fire and said, you know, how do you, uh, do you feel comfortable sort of providing this value or positioning these brands in front of us as young people right. when so many brands are really not trustworthy? And, you know, I think there is a, there's an interesting and important conversation to be had around impact and around sincerity. And I think that there, while it's absolutely true that there are a lot of really bad corporations, there are a lot of really good corporations that are doing or are trying to do a lot of really good things. And so we try to find those groups that we can work with to help them reach their CSR goals and or marketing goals and help mm-hmm. us do the work we want to do of changing the world. And I think that as time goes on, we're seeing more and more of that sincere, authentic integration in a way that's really encouraging. So lastly, Seth, you know, we've heard you talk about the great work that you're doing. And I certainly applaud you for that. But what do you find most inspiring of everything that you do right now? And what's next? Oh, man, I'm so excited about what's coming next with Legacy. We have just barely scratched the surface of some of the new programs we want to build out to help young people realize their goals. And I think what we can be as a resource to students to build the world that they want to be a part of. And so, you know, as far as what I'm excited about, about what's next, I'm really excited to continue in the next two, three, four, five years, you know, building these programs. Very little is sacred as far as how we accomplish this mission right now. So Mm -hmm. I think as far as our product, so to speak, goes, I'm in pretty regular meetings with our education team, figuring out what actually helps our students, what we need to completely throw out and do differently. And that really is fun to me. So I I really Mm -hmm. love that. But I love seeing the impact of students as far as my favorite part of our work. Like I love seeing a young person go from maybe never having had the confidence or even having the ability to understand where to go look for information about how to objectively construct persuasive piece of information about a cause they care about, learn how to do so, and then have those conversations or those presentations in front of their school or with local businesses that they help organize to make change in their own communities. Like, that's just so inspiring and so exciting. And so 
I really do believe in the power of one, right? Like if we only yeah. help one student become an incredible leader, who knows who that one student will go on to be because it only took one, you know, Martin Luther King, it only took one Nelson Mandela, it only took one Gandhi. And so I love that impact. But personally, I'm working on a book that I just started writing a little bit ago that a bit of a leadership development sort of personal growth book that's a combination of some crazy stories of things that have happened, good and bad, uh, in building, you know, these two orgs and hopefully some funny stories that I think may be applicable and meaningful to hopefully anybody trying to build something. So I'm, I'm excited to get that done and see what the world looks like on the other side of COVID, not to uh, right. date this interview. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Seth, you know, best of luck with the book and I uh, congratulate you and all the great work that you've done with these two nonprofits. And thanks for joining me on Beyond Profit. Thank you so much for having me. To learn more about Legacy Youth Leadership, please visit LegacyYouthLeadership.org. Until next time, thanks for listening.